Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewire, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. The following episode was recorded live at a marriage conference held in February of this year. It's taken from a video version, which has been edited to make it more understandable since you don't have the advantage of seeing the graphic illustrations that were used in the presentation. Keep checking our website, growinglovenetwork.org, for the video version, which we should have up soon. It will include some of those important graphic illustrations, which will make some of the points and concepts clearer. Also, each episode in this mini-series builds on the concepts presented in the one before it. Although we have made a concerted effort to make each episode be one that can stand alone as a learning tool, you'll gain much more if you listen to each one in order, as some of the concepts rely on understanding the more basic concepts that are presented in the preceding episodes. This series is titled, How to Have Lifelong Love. This episode is part three of four in this series. It's titled, The Relational Economics of Power Struggles. All right. So um, this guy walks into a bank and he smells really bad. He's very dirty, very disheveled. And he walks up to the teller And he says, I want to open up a blankety-blank checking account. Except he doesn't say blankety-blank. He says some other choice words that I'm not going to repeat. And the teller says, excuse me? He he said, I said I want to open up a blankety-blank checking account. And she said, well, sir, I'd be glad to help you, but we can, you know, can you talk civilly to me and, 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 you know, with respect? He said, listen, are you going to help me or not? I want to open up a blankety-blank checking account. Well, she was new, and she wasn't quite sure how, how to handle these kind of situations. So she goes back and gets the manager, and she said, there's this guy, up, he come up to the window, and he's just really foul. He's just talking really foul. You know, I'm not sure how we're supposed to handle these things. He said, okay, I'll show you. Come on, follow me up there. So he, the manager and the teller go up to the window, and the manager says to the guy, sir, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I'll tell you what I told her. I want to open up a blankety-blank checking account. Is somebody going to help me around here? And the manager says, sir, yeah, we'd be glad, but, you know, it's important that we treat each other with respect. We want to treat you with respect, and, and it doesn't sound like you're treating me or this young lady with respect. Um, you know, can you, can you say this in a different way? And, and he said, look, all I know is I just won the blankety-blank lottery. I got 10 million blankety-blank dollars, and I want to open up a blankety-blank checking account. And the manager says, and this blankety-blank won't help you? Not good. Some of you have been running your relational account in the ground. You've been doing like I used to do, and sometimes still do. I try to treat my marriage like I used to treat my checking account, which is I thought as long as I'm above the zero line, I'm good. And so I was always just keeping, trying to keep just enough money to be above the zero line in my checking account. And what was always happening is sometimes I would forget that I wrote a check to this or that. And we're talking about, you know, back before we even had the carbon copies and before you got an email or a text saying that you're overdrawn. And so I would get a letter three or four days later in the mail saying, uh, you're overdrawn. And 
uh, we've added on another fee. And so now you have even less money in your account. But before I got that letter, I didn't realize that I was in the negative. And so I'd probably written another check or two and gotten two more service charges. And so now I'm way down in the doghouse. Well, that's how I was doing my marriage too, that I would do something that I didn't even realize was hurtful to Joanna and thinking we're good, right? And now we're down here. And so then I do another thing I didn't realize or maybe intentional, but thinking I still got a little buffer zone, but now I'm way down here before I knew it, I'm always digging myself out of a hole. And so I would say stuff like, are we good? Or, you know, be talking to a friend. Uh, how's it going with your marriage? Oh, I think I'm in the doghouse now. Yeah, you better do something to get out of the doghouse. And I'm working really hard, just like I was doing. I'm spending a whole lot more money than I need to and a whole lot more energy in my marriage because I'm just trying to stay out of the doghouse, just trying to keep it above. Well, relational wealth, building relational wealth is just like b building wealth. If you're just trying to avoid bankruptcy, then you're always digging and you're working extra hard. You're working a lot harder. And so a lot of people again say marriage is hard work. Well, it's hard work if you're just trying to avoid bankruptcy. But if you're building relational wealth over time, then you build this buffer. And so things can happen that when you're doing things back in the old ways, it would have put you way down in the red. But when you're building wealth, those little things don't matter so much. And so you're working a lot less to have this good relationship. So part of what we want you to do, that part of that growing is that you're, you're building this buffer zone, building relational wealth, which is so different than avoiding relational bankruptcy. And when you do that, things are going to come along. Things always happen in life. You're going to do things sometimes very unintentionally that hurt your spouse or upset them. But you've got this buffer and it just rolls off their back. When if you were just avoiding bankruptcy, that would have been huge to them. So... Um, about oh, 15 years ago, I, I had this job that I thought I was going to be in the rest of my life. I was one step away from being a tenured professor. I was running a counseling center at San Antonio College, about 21,000 students. And so I just, and, and I loved my work. I thought I, but then this other job came along and they offered me even better pay and doing more of what I like to do, just focusing on marriages. So I said, yes, I'll take that job, but uh, I need a few months to finish out the semester here. So I had uh, uh, saved up some sick leave and some vacation time, and we had about three weeks of, of vacation and sick time, so I told my new job that I would start after I'm finished with those three weeks. And Joanna and I just bought this fixer-upper home, and so we were going to take those three weeks to get it all ready to be moved into. So the very last day of those three weeks bet between finishing this job and starting my new job, I'm down on my knees redoing our floors, and I get a phone call from the new job. The CEO who, who had hired me has been embezzling all the social security funds from our company. We don't have the money to pay you. We can't hire you right now. So I went from one minute having two jobs and now I have no jobs. It took me three days to get the nerve up to tell Joanna because I was remembering back to the time when I was not building relational wealth and, and I was thinking, this is really going to do damage to our relationship. And so finally I told her, and you know what she said? 
We're going to be all right. God knows what's next. He's got us. And I, I, I literally broke down crying because I, I thought this is going to be such a huge hit to our marriage. And it wasn't a big deal at all because we had been working on building wealth. So even though it was a big hit, we were still way above the zero line. Whereas if I hadn't been re- building relational wealth, that kind of hit would have put us, might have ended our marriage, might have been the last draw. As a marriage and family therapist in private practice, I quickly discovered that for most situations, therapy wasn't what most of the couples needed as a first step. After some time of researching why this was so, I discovered that many of the top marriage experts, such as Gary Smalley, John Gottman, and Willard Harley, had discovered the same thing. As counselors and therapists themselves, they had learned that for most who seek out marriage counseling, the best first step is often not to start with counseling, although for many it is often the best second or third step. Like me at this point, you may be wondering to yourself why this is so. Isn't that what everybody in our culture tells us to do when we are having marital problems? Go get counseling? There are several factors that contribute to this phenomenon that would take too long to explain in more than just a few minutes. But a study by the Gottman Institute at the University of Washington showed that when couples start with marriage counseling or therapy, within 24 months, only 17% of them will still be married to each other. I don't know about you, but I would not elect for any medical treatment that said there's an 83% chance of death. Over the past 12 years, I have conducted over 100 marriage intensive workshops. The reason I started doing them in the first place is because they held a promise of a much higher success rate. In fact, two separate studies have concluded that at least 70% of the couples who have attended these workshops are still married. So you see, The results of starting with counseling versus starting with a reputable intensive are overwhelmingly at polar ends of the success spectrum. I still believe in counseling. At any given time, I am working with numerous couples in a one-on-two counseling type setting. However, these are either premarital couples or couples who have already been through our Love Reboot, a marriage intensive workshop. So, if you have an okay marriage that you would like to be wonderful, If you have a stagnant marriage that seems to be more and more like two people just sharing a roof and bills, if you have recently been separated or considered separation, or either of you have suggested separation, if either one of you has considered or suggested divorce, if there's been a recent affair, or maybe you're just one of the many who has tried all sorts of approaches to growing your marriage, but none of them seem to have a lasting positive effect. If any of these applies, get to the next Love Reboot weekend that you can possibly put on your calendar. I say possibly instead of conveniently because we've seen so many couples who know they need it but can't seem to find a convenient time to make it happen. Suddenly they realize that they've come to a point where it's too late and one or both spouses is no longer willing to try. I don't know about you, but it is never convenient for me to set aside three days for something that doesn't sound like a vacation. If I needed a heart transplant, but waited until it was convenient to have the surgery, well, we all know where that goes. Love Reboot is the relational surgery that you know you can't put off any longer. So, 
joined the hundreds of marriages that were once eroding, failing, or headed for divorce, but are now experiencing a thriving, growing relationship with each other because of the new start that they got from attending a Love Reboot weekend. Find out when the next one is by going to our website, growinglovenetwork.org. Okay, let's uh, go to growing acceptance. Oh, where did I put my clicker? I think I left. Hang on. Okay, Mike, I think I'm just going to have to say next slide, next slide until uh, after the break. I don't remember where I put it. Ah. All right. Should have written that down. Okay, so I've been talking a lot about acceptance. And some people, you know, when I get this far in acceptance, it's like, okay, acceptance, acceptance. But does that mean you accept bad behavior, unhealthy behavior, destructive behavior? No. You never accept bad behavior. But there's a big difference between accepting a person and accepting their behavior. This is what God does with us, right? He fully accepts us. 100%. We are clothed in when we When we say, yes, I want your gift, free gift of grace, then automatically he says, you are from now on totally righteous in my eyes. That doesn't mean that he ignores our, our bad behavior, but even when we do something for the 10,000th time that hurts our relationship with him, and we turn to him, his smile is just as big, his arms are just as wide open as the first time we turn to him in that situation. And that's the way that he wants us to love each other. So when you love somebody, sometimes it does require confronting them. But here's the thing. If your spouse does not feel accepted by you, then your confrontation is at best going to fall on deaf ears. And more likely what they're going to do is turn the mirror back to you and say, yeah, but look at you. So we have to build this nice, and, and we have to continually keep working on this nice, thick, heavy-duty foundation of acceptance in our relationship before anything else is going to start working. So some of you are going to have to spend a lot of time making some big, huge deposits, opening up some big $10 million checking accounts with your spouse, and spending some time leaving that in there because maybe if you made some big deposits in the past, but the very next day you yanked it back out, well, that's what they're probably expecting. So it's going to take some time to build that wealth, some time to build this foundation of acceptance before you're able to work on any of the other issues. So that's what we do with a lot of couples. They go, oh, here's our, we, you know, my, my husband drinks too much or my wife spends too much money or whatever it is. And we're like, yeah, okay, that's, you think that's the problem. That's just a symptom of the problem. What we have to work on first is getting a good, strong foundation of acceptance. Then we can start working on the other issues, but still we're gonna have to keep that working on that foundation. So that's another reason why we date for life. All right, so let's talk about acceptance a little bit more here. Remember, um, and some of this is just some recap, but it's so important we, that it's worth restating. Your mate chose you because they believed you accepted them. That's what made them fall in love with you in the first place. Acceptance 
is the primary motivator for human behavior. When I'm working with an individual or a couple and I'm looking through this lens, it just makes so much sense. What's behind that? What's behind that? It always, when you keep digging down, when you get to the core of that onion, it's, oh, it's about acceptance. All relationship techniques and tools should be grounded in acceptance. I'm going to give you some, some techniques about communicating later on. But I, I guarantee if you go back and try them and you're not putting acceptance in behind all that you're doing, then it's, it's not going to work. If I was working with a couple with a sexual issue, I could give them some tools that might be helpful. But in the long run, they're not going to work if they don't understand that acceptance is the bottom line to all that. The best measure of compatibility is the willingness to be accepting. So when we're looking at a couple, uh, in fact, I do a lot of premarital counseling, and the first thing I ask them, uh, well, I, I, each couple that I'm working with, I'll have at least one session while I see each person alone. And the first thing I ask them when I'm working with each spouse alone or future spouse, fiance, is I say, is there anything about this other person that you're not willing to live with for the rest of your life? That's the deal breaker question. Because you're not going to be able to change them. You've got to understand that right off the bat. And you may have to live with this the rest of your life. And if you can't, then we don't even need to have another session. You don't need to marry this person. And a lot of you are spending so much time and energy thinking, I will just be, we will be happy if only he or she would stop doing this or start doing this. And I'm, I'm telling you, you're spinning your wheels. No, you're doing worse than that. You're spinning wheels and throwing mud all over yourself and everybody else. The best measure of compatibility is not likeness. It's not like-mindedness. It's not having the same personalities and same desires and tastes and all that stuff. In fact, uh, some of the best marriages are when we find, okay, this is my lifelong desire and this is your lifelong desire. And they look very different but we are looking for ways to bring them together. Joanna loves order. She has a business called A Place for Everything. When people walk into our house and it's what Joanna would call messy, they're like, did somebody just come and clean your house? Because it's, it's, everything's always in its place. And that's what she does. She helps people get organized. Me, I'm a pile maker. I'm a pack rat. And I collect Anything that's collectible, safety pins, bottle caps, you know, uh, so we are very different in this way, but we have learned over time more and more how, okay, what, John, I understand you like to collect. What's the important things to collect? You know, what really matters to you? Let's collect those. And okay, Joanna, she's gotten to where she'll some, you know what? In fact, she just said, started adopting this phrase the other day. I've put perfection in the rearview mirror. So we're learning how to put, bring our dreams together. But it wasn't me trying to get her to relax and her trying to get me to be a little bit more tidy. It was us putting our dreams together. And again, how you think and feel about your mate is more influenced by your own actions than theirs. When I first met Joanna, I think I told you last night, what really got me was that she's just off the charts extroverted and I'm introverted. And the reason I even, and I've 
probably told this to several, but I actually truly believe it. The reason I have more than one friend is because I'm married to Joanna. People think, oh, when they get to know her, they think, well, he must be a great guy if he's married to her, you know. I have friends because she is so, she's just so great with people. Well, she can talk constantly. She could talk 24 hours a day until she drops. And that's one of the things I fell in love with. But in those years three and four, I went to one of our elders at our church in Colorado. I said, uh, we were having lunch. How's your marriage going? Oh, let me tell you, Joanna talks constantly. And it's driving me crazy. Well, you mean you, you didn't know that when you first started dating? Yeah, I guess I did. So you actually fell in love with that trait. But over time, you've chosen, you've chosen to look through a different lens. You were, you were, at that time, you were saying, I love this about her. And now, over time, you've decided to look through a different lens and say, I hate this about her. Some of the things that, you, that drive you crazy about your spouse are the very things that you fell in love with them about. Yeah, maybe they have their bad side, but what's at the core? So he said, John, I want you to start praying every day and thanking God that Joanna talks a lot. And I said, I, I can't pray that prayer. That, that's dishonest. No, it's not. You have friends because she talks a lot. You're right. So you can thank God that you have friends because she talks a lot. So I prayed this prayer every day for 40 days. And I can tell you, it changed 180 degrees the way I thought and felt about Joanna. Not her doing different, but me doing different. If you can't be happy and healthy with your mate, you won't be happy and healthy without your mate. You see, if you think your happiness and your mental health and your physical health depends on your mate, then you are what we would call in the psychological world highly defensive. And highly defensive people are the most likely people to suffer from depression, anxiety, all kinds of other... And PTSD has a whole lot to do, not in every case, uh, with what we would call defensiveness. And uh, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we all have traumatic stuff happen... But when we let that traumatic thing rule our life, it's an outside thing deciding how I think and feel, then I'm going to suffer from it more. Those scars are going to hurt me more and more. When I think that my emotional well-being depends on how my spouse acts, then I'm giving them power they don't have. And now there is no power because nobody can make me I can't make myself better. They surely can't. So if I can't be healthy and happy, what I'm saying here, yes, John, is there some exception? I mean, if my spouse is beating me physically, well, yes, you need to get away from them. You need to know, it's not loving to be a punching bag for somebody. But that's still, you can still be a healthy, happy person, even if you need to get away from them, you can still be happy and healthy. Your spouse, if you're letting them dictate your happiness and your healthy, healthiness, then you are giving them power that they don't have and they can't have. Okay. I want to see a show of hands in just a second if you've ever experienced this with your spouse. It could be you're leaving 
church and it's lunchtime or just, you know, you're driving the car and you're both hungry and you have this discussion that goes like this. Where would you like to eat? I don't know. Where would you like to eat? Doesn't matter to me. You, you pick. No, I don't care. You pick. No, really, you pick. I, I'm, I'm good with anything. No, I'm good with anything. You pick. Anybody ever had that discussion? Okay. You know what's going on there? Nine times out of ten, it's a power struggle. Because what you think, you think you're being nice and saying you pick. But what really what you're saying is, honey, I want you to pick a place that I want to go eat. So, with Joanne and I, we'll play this out. So, here's what happens. You pick. No, you pick. No, you pick. Okay, finally, I'll say, okay, okay, I'll pick. We're going to go to McDonald's. We're going to go to the drive-up window, and everybody gets uh, three items off the dollar menu. Take it home watch the Spurs. I'm sorry. If you don't like Spurs, then you need to talk to God about that. Um, so, I say McDonald's, $3 menu. Joanna then goes, well, wait a second. Uh, I, I wasn't talking about drive-up window junk food. I was talking about let's go sit down as a family and have a meal that's healthy. And, well, you told me to pick. Well, yeah, but you knew, uh, I didn't mean pick McDonald's. No, you told me to pick, and you're fine with it. Okay? And it could work the other way, too. Um, let's say that we go back and forth, and, and, and Joanna says, okay, I'll pick. And, and this is just for compare and contrast. This is not Joanna. But let's say Joanna says, okay, I'll pick. We're going to look, we'll go to Le Fufu. I just made that, that up. That's not a real restaurant. But uh, again, for comparing and contrasting, Le Fufu is you're not going to get out of there for less than $200, and it's going to take at least two hours, and we're going to miss the game completely. And, uh, you know, you've got this white linen tablecloth and two or three people in tuxes serving you an expensive art on the wall. Okay, so Joanna says, okay, I'll pick. We'll go to Le Fufu. Well, then I'll go, uh, wait a second now. Um, Le Fufu, uh, I wasn't talking about, you know, emptying out the bank account, and, and we'll miss the game. Well, you told me to pick. Uh, well, yeah, but you knew that I wouldn't uh, I didn't mean that. No, you told me to pick. You said whatever's fine. So what's going on there is a power struggle. Now, the thing about power, and, and for years I thought, well, this is why we can't have a democracy in marriage. Because you're either going to have a unanimous decision or a split decision. So when there's a split decision, somebody's got to be the tiebreaker. And since I wear the pants most of the time, I am going to be the tiebreaker. Yes, I'll be a benevolent overlord. I will consider everybody's opinions and thoughts. But ultimately, uh, somebody's got to be the tiebreaker. So I'll, I'll have 51% of the power. Well, I didn't understand a lot about power dynamics. So when any two people, in fact, the next slide is power is always an issue in all human interaction. We can't avoid it. It's always an issue. When you're interacting with your spouse or really anybody else, power is an issue there. That doesn't mean there's always a power struggle. Power struggle is just when you stop sharing power. But the power is always an issue. Why? Well, because we all fear being overpowered. It, not just, it, you know, if I get overpowered, well, it could hurt me or it can make me end up doing something that I don't believe in. 
but also it can be benevolent, you know, can be noble. I, I, if I lose power, uh, then you can make a decision that, that it adversely is, is a negative thing to the kids. So I've got to have some power here. I've got to have some say. So if we're not sharing power, that, that there's going to be a power struggle. And that power struggle can come out, come out in a lot of ways. It can come out like, okay, I'll lose this one. But you do this again, boy, you're going to pay, right? Or we'll pretend to be nice. Yeah, okay, well, I'll let you do it that way. But then we keep in the back of mind, next time I get to make call a shot. So there's always two sides. And once, there's, once a power struggle develops, then it eventually settles out into two different areas of power. And that is the covert power and the overt power. The overt power is the one that's obvious. So if in that situation I say, okay, we're going to McDonald's and join us. Well, well, no, I didn't say McDonald's. Uh, you know I didn't mean that. I meant where we sit down and eat something healthy. Well, you told me to pick. I'm picking. We're going to McDonald's. Okay, now I've taken the overt power position. So once one person claims the overt power position, then the other person goes, okay, well, I'm not going to lose power here. So then they'll slip into the covert power position. So here's how it would play out in that. No, we're going to McDonald's. That's what you said me. I'm going to pick, so I'm picking. That's where we're going. Okay, Joanna now and the covert. Well, kids, I guess your dad doesn't care about your health, does he? <laughs> or uh, sometimes uh, what's very powerful is to say nothing. You know, and we all go, and now, now we're all in this awkward, awesome silence that just ruins the day for everybody. And we sit there while we're eating our meal and nobody's talking and the kids are just like, I can't wait to get home and get away from mom and dad. So the thing is, when we struggle for power, everybody loses. You don't win when you get your way if you haven't shared power. But there's a way that we can get our way every time as long as we understand that it's not going to be our first choice every time. So let's imagine this room is filled with tables, like uh, round tables that are about four feet wide. And every one of those tables is an issue in your marriage that you disagree on. Now, if you're like me, I would need a room way bigger than this. In fact, I probably wouldn't be able to see the other wall. And on each of those tables, you've got as many pennies as you can possibly stack on that table. It's going to be thousands of pennies. Each of those pennies represents a possible solution to that issue. What happens early in marriage when we start living together and we realize there's things we don't like about how you do things and how you think about things and all that stuff then we try to change each other, and that doesn't work. So then we start, we start thinking, well, okay, I've got to not lose power here. So we pick an issue that we think, I'm not going to budge on this because this, this one really matters to me. I mean, this one goes to my deepest rock-bottom theological beliefs or you know, uh, philosophy or whatever it is, things that I believe. So we, we take a, this, this, this big issue right here I, I just can't budge on, and we stick a flag in it, and we go, I'm not moving on this one. This is going to go my way. And then the other spouse, oh, well, I guess I better. Okay, and they pick out one big issue and they stick a flag. Well, then this one I'm not budging on. If you're not going to budge on that, I'm not budging on this one. And then, okay, well, uh, here's another one. 
And pretty soon, every little issue that we disagree on, the little smallest anthill has a flag stuck in it. And so every time we run into a situation that we disagree on, it becomes a knockdown, drag out argument, fight. And we go into every issue thinking, I'm either going to win this or lose this. So we may even lose one so that maybe we can hopefully win a, one that matters more to us, thinking that we're being good. I, I, I think all, all marriages do this to some extent. I remember my brother-in-law, Russell, and his wife, Gina, one way they tried to solve this, and it's better than nothing, is when, when they come to those issues, they would do rock, paper, scissors. And, well, at least it kept them from arguing most of the time, but it still didn't deal with the issue. They weren't sharing power. So what we have to do if we're in that situation is, well, what happens over time, all those tables with all those pennies, is that we grab our penny and we put a thumb and hold it down on the table, and then our spouse grabs their penny and puts thumb down on that, and then we take our other hand, we will wipe all the other pennies off the table, and now all we recognize is that there's only two solutions, my way and your way. And so we don't, ever, we don't know that all these other pennies on the ground are possible ways of, of solving this issue. And so then everything becomes a knockdown. And then what happens when we're struggling for power constantly, we actually fight over things that don't really matter to us. You know, I, I can remember when Joanna and I weren't sharing power. Remember when we were first dating, I would actually attempt to dress in a way that was acceptable to her. You know, buying those Target ciders. Well, then three or four years later, we're in our deep part of our marriage, and she's dressed to the nines. We're going to something that really matters to her, and she's like decked out. And I'm, I come out of the closet wearing some old fat, faded raggedy jeans and a t-shirt with some graphic thing on it and my work boots. And she says, is that really how you're going to go? And I'm like, no, either this or nothing at all. What do you think? You know, something sarcastic. And, and I'm like, why are you trying to change me? I'm not trying to change you, John. I just, you know, I, this just matters to me. And I thought you'd, you know, and, and I'm going, and then we're having an argument and I'm going, why is this happening? Well, it's because I'm not sharing power with her. If I was sharing power, when I go to the closet to go somewhere, I would be going, okay, what's something that's going to be acceptable to Joanna? And so as soon as I started doing that, you know, I can put something on, okay, I think she'll like this, and I think she'll like that. I can pick out something that doesn't match at all. But when she knows I'm sharing power, that I'm thinking of her, and I come out of the closet, is that, what do you think? Is this okay? She'll be like, yeah, that's fine. Here's how I know that if what, I'm, what I put on is just totally clashes. If I come out and say, is this, is this okay to wear where we're going? And she says, yeah, but you, why don't you go ask the girls to get a second opinion? That's when I know I've totally gotten it wrong. But, but see, the thing is, when she knows that I'm thinking of her, that I'm considering her, I'm sharing power with her, then these other issues they start to go away. The other issues that we, that we argue about, they don't really matter because uh, when I, she knows that I'm thinking of her when I'm putting on my clothes, then I can get it wrong and it's okay. So if we were going to that scenario, 
the restaurant, and I say, Joanna, where do you want to eat? I don't care where you want to eat. Okay, so finally I go, okay, let's go eat at, there's a place called Perico's. Reasonable prices, reasonable atmosphere, sit down, get out of there in, you know, in time to get the second half. Um, and I say Perico's. Now, is it my favorite? No. Is it her favorite? No. But we both, yeah, I can do that. It's acceptable. So if I say, okay, how about Perico's? Nine times out of ten, she'll say, sounds good. One time out of ten, she'll say, yeah, that, or how about, you guys, you guys don't have Rudy's barbecue here, do you? Okay, the, the original Rudy's is just down the street from our church. So how about Rudy's? Not my favorite, not her favorite, but we both like it. And so she'll throw, yeah, okay, great. Solve like that. So here's, here's the rule of both win. Every decision I make should leave us both feeling like we both win. Let's say Joanna got her way. Let's say Joanna finally went, no, you said pick. We're going to LeFoufou. Okay, then I slip in the covert, covert power position. What do I say? Well, kids, I guess we're not paying the electricity bill this month. And then while we're eating, they bring our food. And I'm like, I could have I gotten 10 pounds of this at McDonald's for the same price. I hope we get to take that art home. What are we paying her, you know? Um, so either way, we lose. When we're sharing power, we have a whole lot less of those things. But if I'm considering, in every decision I make, if I'm showing my spouse, hey, I'm considering you, then we don't even have to have these discussions. We just throw out what we think. In other words, what I do is I take my penny off the table, even if they don't take theirs off. I throw it down, throw it out of the way. That's not going to work. And I start looking for other pennies that will meet this rule. So I pick one up and I say, what about this? No, okay, what about this? If I'm looking for the penny right off the bat that I know they'll accept, nine times out of 10, I don't even have to pick up a second penny because I pick up the one that I know, yeah, how about this? And if I'm sharing power, then I I could get it slightly wrong, but they'll go, yeah, sounds good. So every decision, now some of you are going, wait, every single, what, what if I'm at work and, and uh, you know, my spouse works somewhere else and I go to the cafeteria and they've got two choices, chicken salad or tuna salad that day. Do I have to call my spouse up and say, hey, I've got a decision here, chicken salad or tuna salad? Probably not. But if you've been struggling for power between each other for years and years, that might be a great way to show them, hey, I'm thinking of you right now. I am striving for the rule of both win. And when you're, the more you do that, then the less you're going to have to struggle. So some of you may have to let your spouse know, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of you, chicken or tuna here. I was doing a, a, a marriage conference in Minneapolis a few years back, and I was talking about this, and a guy at the back says, hey, I've got a question you're talking about stuff that's not really a big deal. What about, does this work with stuff that really matters? And I said, well, like what? Because I was convinced, yeah, this works with, with every issue. It'll solve every issue if you're shooting for it like that. And he said, I said, so like, what are you thinking? He said, well, here's our issue. I'm Muslim. My wife's Christian. We've got three little boys, ages three, five, and seven. That's part of the reason we're here. I want the boys to go to the mosque with me. She wants them to go to church with her. I don't want them going to church with her. She didn't want them to go to the mosque with me. 
solve that one, your big boy. Well, I about crapped my pants. And, but I was in a corner and I said, well, uh, I think we can deal, let's, here's what you can do when you come up a bit against the really big ones. First of all, you need to have equal say. So I'm going to let you have equal say. We don't have a lot of time. We'll give you about a minute and a half each. And then after you've had equal say about why you think it's important for, for things to go this way, then you take your way off the table, even if your spouse doesn't, and you brainstorm together all the other ideas you can think of that might solve this. And then brainstorming means there are no bad ideas. You're just getting every idea that you can think of that might solve this out there. And then when you're finished doing that, when you've totally exhausted everything that you can think of, then the two of you together pick the one that best meets the rule of both wins. So I said, okay, uh, let's flip a coin here. Okay, husband, you go first. So for about a minute and a half, he made a very passionate, convicted argument about, about why the boys should go to the mosque with him on Saturdays. And then it's her turn for about a minute and a half. She made a convicted, passionate argument about why they should go to church with her on Sunday. And they said, okay, we got that. And then I said, okay, the rest of the group here, we're going to, everybody, we're going to, I wrote them, had a big whiteboard about half the size of that screen. And I said, let's start picking up pennies. And people say, somebody said, well, they could alternate. One week go to one, one week go to the other. And somebody else said, well, um, they could let the boys pick. Uh, and somebody else said, well, they could go to a universalist church. And somebody else said, well, they could go to church one and school the other. And somebody said, they could get a, and they caught themselves because they realized that doesn't solve the issue. Getting a divorce would not solve, in fact, it would only exacerbate the issue. Getting a divorce would not solve the issue. Somebody said, well, wait a second, doesn't, doesn't the mosque meet on Saturday and church on Sunday? Yeah, well, they could go on, to, on Saturday, go to the mosque, and Sunday go to church. Now, up until this time, they had been in power struggle. The husband had taken the overt power position, and the wife had taken the covert power position. The wife said, I, the husband said, I wear the pants, I make decisions, the boys go to the mosque with me. But the husband had a job where he was out of town on weekends a lot. So the wife in her covert power position, when he's out of town, would take him to church. Shh, don't tell your dad. Of course, he would find out about now and then and big explosion. So we wrote all these ideas on the board and here's how I got out of it. I said, okay, let's together with the group, let's pick, let's pick three that we think are the best. So we circled three and I said, okay, you guys go home and, and, and figure it out from those three right there. Well, we got an email from them about uh, a week later. And they said, here's what happened. The husband up until this time had never set foot in the wife's church and she had never set foot on the grounds of his mosque. People ask, wait, were they Muslim and Christian before they got married? Yeah, well, what's up with that? Well, now you know, it's called limerence. So limerence made them think, oh, this will all work itself out. The husband told us when he, he made the, he said, I, this is my, uh, what really brought this to the surface is our oldest boy, who's only seven, the other day told us we were having an argument about this. And he said, I don't want to do, have anything to do with either one of your faiths. When I, when I get old enough, I'm not going, I'm not following either one of your faiths. Because all he'd seen of their faiths was a power struggle. 
All he's seen from their faith was the way they treated each other. So they sent us this email, and the email said, okay, here's what we did. We, we sat the boys down together, and the dad went first, and he said, boys, I don't believe in your mom's faith. I think it's wrong. I don't condone it. But your mom is my wife and your mom, and to, so, to support her as a person and us as a family, I'm going to go, when I'm in town, I'm going to go to church with you and, and your mom. And then the mom said, boys, I don't believe that your husband's faith, I, I think it's wrong, I don't condone it, but your husband is a child of God, and he's my husband, he's your father, to support him and our family, I'm going to go to the mosque with you all on, on Saturdays. About nine months later, we get a postcard, a Christmas card, a picture of them all sitting out on their back porch, uh, having a meal together, all smiling, and written on the back said, thank you so much, and oh, by the way, last week, my husband was baptized. And I don't think that would have happened if they would have continued on the road they were on. But sharing that power Showing each other real love is what finally broke through. Okay, I'm going to make this short and to the point. The podcast you're listening to, Relationship Rewire, is a free service to the public provided by Growing Love Network, a nonprofit organization. That means we don't make a profit. In fact, To be able to do what we do, which is to provide top-notch innovative help for marriages, we rely on donors so that everyone can have access to the help they need, regardless of the ability to pay. Won't you take a moment, hit the pause button, and go to growinglovenetwork.org, click on the donate button, and give what you can. If you're not sure about it at this moment, hit pause anyway just for 15 seconds, and ask yourself if this is what you should do. Go ahead, I'll wait. Did you hit pause and go donate? Good, thank you. If not, hit pause now. Hello, this is Max Locato. You're listening to Relationship Rewire. Now, I'm going to preach for just a moment, and then we'll break. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament Um, is in Luke, the story of the Good Samaritan. Most of you know the story. A guy's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Joanne and I got about uh, 20 years ago, we got to go to a trip to Israel, and we actually saw this road. In fact, there's two roads from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's the old road, which is down through the canyon, and the new road, which is a paved highway up, up on the plains above it. The most direct route is through the canyon. But the tour guide, we were up on the high route, and the tour guide said, to this day, you don't take that path because you'll probably get robbed. 
So this guy's going on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets robbed. He gets beat up. They think he's dead. They take everything, including his clothes, from him. And now, there's a lot of detail in this that really matters, that I have, every time I read it, I catch another thing. I'm just like, wow. But one of the things I've discovered lately is, why is he telling this story? Well, everywhere Jesus went, you know, they were hoping for a Messiah, A lot of the people were hoping, they were hoping for a Messiah that was going to be a political military ruler because the Romans were in control of their homeland and they wanted the Romans out. So their idea of a Messiah was going to be somebody who changed policy, politics for them, was going to be this mighty military ruler. And here's Jesus and what's he doing? He's spending the time with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards and, and he's going around. He's not, he doesn't even carry a sword. He's not talking about rising up against the Romans. And so they're trying to trip him up all the time. Everywhere he's going around trying to love on people. And there's always this group of people, the Pharisees, sitting over on the, on the edges, whispering in people's ears, see, he's not the Messiah. The Romans are still here. And then they're they're jumping in and, say, and, and trying to trip him up, trying to make him look bad in front of everybody with questions, mostly about does he know Scripture. So before he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, one of those guys says, hey, so what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, he knows the answer to this. It, he quotes the Shema. If you're a Jew and you don't know the Shema, you're not a Jew. He said, well, it's... It's from uh, Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, and you should love the Lord your God with all you got and love the, and this is John's version, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and uh, so he, he says, and on those two commandments, love God with all you got and love your neighbor as yourself, all the rest of the scripture hangs on those two commandments. Everything else in scripture is about those two commandments. The guy's like, didn't get him on that one. He knows the Shema. He knows the two great commandments. So, okay, I'll try to trip him up on this. So who's my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus then tells the story. So he says, so this guy's beaten up, laying there for dead, naked. And the first person that comes by is one of you. One of you people that's trying to trip me up. He says, a priest. Well, Priest and Levite, the next person, a priest is a Levite. The Levites were priests. He's saying, one of you people who worships all these other laws and not the two big ones comes by and does nothing and moves on. And then another one of you comes by and does nothing and moves on. You religious people. But then a Samaritan comes along. Now, just the fact that he said Samaritan would have immediately, those guys trying to trip him up, the hair would have stood up in the back of their neck. They would have been like, what's he going to say about a Samaritan? Uh, Josephus, a historian that lived at the time of Jesus in the land of Israel, he writes that at, during that time, uh, the, the Samaritans were so, they were thought of as scum of the earth. They were the lowest form of human. In fact, uh, most Jews thought of them as subhumans. If you're walking down the street in Jerusalem and you're a Jew and a Samaritan is walking down the street coming your way, they would, the Jew would cross over to the other side of the street just to not be on the same side of the street as the Samaritan. So that's, that's what they thought of Samaritans. 
Jesus said, it's a Samaritan who stops, does first aid, puts the guy on his donkey, takes him back to town, and pays his hospital bills till he gets better. And then Jesus says, so who is the good neighbor? The, this is how much they despise Samaritans. The guy can't even say the Samaritan. He just goes, the one who had pity on him. And then he leaves. I used to think that story was about sometimes you got to take risks. And probably it is. There's a lot in that story. But I just thought about sometimes you got to take risks to help people. But I think the deeper message is Jesus is saying, see, you get so hung up on your being right that you put your being right above love. Another experience that we had, we were in, we went to part of this tour that we did. We went to Nazareth where Jesus grew up and we got there on a Friday and we were staying in this hotel. that was like nine stories tall. We were in this big group and they said, hurry up. Uh, we, we don't have much time. Dinner's going to be served down on the first floor in about 20 minutes. So go get your luggage, put it away and, and come downstairs. So we go, Joanna and I roll our luggage onto the elevator and the doors close and we reach to push the button. And I don't know if you saw the movie Elf where he gets on the elevator in the Empire State Building and hits all the buttons. Well, that's what some kid had done. We got, and every button was lit up. So the doors close, we go to the second floor. The doors open, nobody's standing there. We have to wait. Doors closed, second floor. We're on the seventh floor. We have to stop at every floor. Nobody's there. Well, we go put our luggage away, and then we're kind of in a hurry now. We're running. It's already time to be down there. And we get on the elevator, and the same little kid had done it again. All the lights were lit up. So we had to stop on every floor on the way down. Doors open. Nobody's there. So we get down, and we go, sorry we're late, but both ways... Up and down, some kid had lit up all the, all the lights, all the buttons, and we had to stop on every floor. And they go, mm, sorry, no, that happened to all of us. It's the Sabbath. Friday at sundown, the Sabbath starts. And on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do work. And so, I guess, pushing a button would be a lot of work. And so the elevators are programmed at sundown on Friday that you can't operate the buttons. That's the very kind of thing Jesus is addressing. Isn't it a whole lot more loving to let me push my button and go to my floor than to make me sit and wait for every floor to doors? No, they're focused on these laws and not the top law. I call this upside down gospel. And it's so often I find myself doing it. I find myself in an argument with Joanna putting a lot more emphasis on being right than loving her. And the, another message in that story is Jesus is saying, see, you think your neighbor is the person who lives next door to you, worships in your synagogue with you, thinks and acts like you do. Your neighbor is whoever I put in your path. And your greatest commandment in life, the thing I want the most from you, and you can't love me if you're not loving that person. These two go together. And it really convicts me because who, who is my, 
who is the neighbor that is most in my path? Who is the neighbor that, that I have to deal with differences the most with? It's my spouse. And if I'm not loving my spouse, I'm not really loving God. Because see, if my love for my spouse depends on the way that she acts, well, that's the love that I'm going to have for anybody else too. And that's not real love. My love depends on you thinking like me, on you doing like me. I wonder if if Jesus was here right now in person, in flesh, he is here. But if he was in flesh and was up here and he would say, I wonder if he would use, instead of Samaritan, if he would use a different, if he was talking directly to you, who would he bring up? Who is the person that, that you despise the most? Who's the person that gets under your skin the most? So I know it's not Sunday, but that's my sermon. No more preaching. So there's always many solutions to every situation. And people ask me, John, uh, do you, what's a good parenting class? Oh, there's a couple that we took that helped a lot. Um, and, and, uh, but the, the best parenting class is the one you both agree on. It's not, it's, it, it could be, in my mind, it could be the 10th one down the list. It may not even be on the list, but if it's the only one you agree on, that's the only one that's going to work in the first place. Because if you, if you take what I think is the very best parenting class, but one of you doesn't want to be there, it ain't going to work. The other one's going to sabotage it. Every decision you make for your children, if you're not on the same page, it's not going to work. The other person's going to sabotage it because they're not going to let go of power. And a good friend of mine uh, who's a preacher in, in um, uh, San Antonio, Mark Absher, he said, John, you know what? I, I do agree with your rule of both win in a lot of circumstances, but sometimes you just got to lose. And he's right. Sometimes you just got to lose. But if, if losing means that you're going to try to win later on, that's not, that's not giving your, laying down your life to the other person. So if you're truly saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to totally give this as a gift, I'm not expecting anything, and I'm going to be fully on board with your decision, great. But if you can't do that, then that's when you've got to use rule of both ways. Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize relationships for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this or any of our episodes. Send us an email to relationshiprewire at gmail.com. Honey, I want you to pick a place that I want to go eat.